Howdy, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the pleasure of speaking with my pastor, Douglas Wilson. One book that kept coming to mind as we chatted was his book, Rules for Reformers. This book is a little bit proclamation of grace, a little bit art of war, and a little bit analysis of past embarrassments and current cowardice all mixed together with a bunch of advanced knife-fighting techniques. As motivating as it is provocative, Rules for Reformers is just plain good to read. Get Rules for Reformers today at canonpress.com, and without further ado, meet Pastor Douglas Wilson. All right, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. This week, special guest, first time on the Canon Calls podcast is Pastor Douglas Wilson. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Yeah, great to be here. Okay. From down the street. From down the street. So, I've been thinking for a while, if I do a Pastor Wilson episode, I want to make sure I get, you know, maybe something different that you may not be asked in all interviews. I'm curious though, as you, over your ministry, and through seasons, have you seen sort of an arc of what people want to interview you about? <laughs> I don't know if there's an arc. There are definite patterns. Okay. So, um, sometimes it has to do with the release of what's the most recent book yep. or, or someone discovers the book. They're just, they just got into post-millennialism. Right. And so, they look up my book on that and they want to talk about that. Or they, just last week, I did one on the serrated edge, which is like old book that I did years ago. So, yeah, there's a rhyme and a reason to it, but I wouldn't say there's a narratival arc. I'm curious if you have been waiting over the years for an interview that just hasn't happened yet. Do you think there's, this, there's been this glaring thing that you're waiting for someone to ask you about? No, I just generally go where I'm pointed. <laughs> <laughs> I come in the morning, I look at my calendar, what, what am I, what's going to happen to me today? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, no, I can't say that I've, I get asked about a lot of things from a lot of directions and I'm sure there are areas that are not covered or haven't, I've haven't been interviewed on, but I don't know what they are. Okay. I'm going to do my best. I don't think I've heard you okay. give an interview like the one we're about to do. Okay. Or at least string these things together. For I'll folks. see what I can do to help. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I mentioned to you before we started that I, I did not grow up here. I've li I lived in Texas, I went to Minneapolis for college, and now I'm here, and I, I travel for the holidays. And it's been very interesting over time to, you know, I'll be here and working in daily life, and I'm breathing a particular air, and then I will go away. Mm -hmm. I'll go home for the holidays, or I'll travel for work, and things become evident that maybe weren't obvious when I was here working, or, you know, right. they're just things you, they're just things in the air. So. I'm curious, as we produce so much stuff out of Canon, for example, your two podcasts just at 2 million downloads, we export so much out of Moscow. What have you found to be the most difficult to give to folks? So you're giving a lot, but let's say everyone, someone has read all of what Doug Wilson has to say about everything. What aren't they getting that you are also trying to give them? Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. Um, so... First, let me say that people who buy my books and who read them and who read everything I write, well, I, I write things in order to be read. So, I'm very grateful to the people who 
devour what I do. I'm yep. very grateful for them, need them, appreciate them, and so on. But there is a category of person within that broad set that reads everything I write and uh, misses the point of much of it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Not, and they don't miss the point of what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's say they read uh, my book on post-millennialism and they become post-mill or they, they read uh, my book on infant baptism and they become paedobaptist. I'm not saying that they don't track with the arguments right. there, but the person who doesn't get it is the person who doesn't pick up on what I think you're getting at, which is the intangibles. Right there, there are a host of intangibles that surround this, and you can you can tell that the person doing this is is falling into this error if um, they become the biggest Doug Wilson fan in the universe, and they do everything within their power to make their pastor hate the name Doug Wilson. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so have you received such uh, such emails? Well, I've uh, well, I've I've uh, encountered okay. this reality. Right. Okay. I hear about pastors who wouldn't cross the street to give me the time of day. And it's not because I think that they've researched what I teach or they did their dissertation or whatever on, on me. I think it's frequently, I think it's because they've got someone in the congregation who, after, after they've preached a sermon, come up to them afterwards and say, well, that's not what Doug Wilson thinks. Or have you seen this clip from Doug Wilson where he contradicted everything that you just Send a May blog uh, link. <laughs> Send yeah. a May blog link or whatever. And what they're doing is they're being ham-handed in their appreciation of and embrace of uh, what I'm teaching. And uh, Eric Hoffer, m many years ago, wrote a uh, fantastic little book, not a, not a Christian book, but a fantastic little book called The True Believer. And The True Believer is someone who needs a cause. They need a flag to march behind. They need a gun. And they need to be told what direction to shoot. But the project that we're engaged in trying to trust God for yep. is a project that not only has these intangibles as a nice-to-have add-on, but rather relies on the intangibles that make, okay. the, that make the thing attractive, that make it winsome, that make it potent. So, without, without those intangibles, it's just another set of ideologies and we live in a, an era of ideology here are my talking points here are my arguments here are my bible verses what's your problem you moron so the intangibles are an essential part of it now you said in terms of trusting those intangible or not not trusting god for the intangibles what, what are some examples of that in terms of um i mean i assume so if someone read serrated edge right you know, they could, they could sort of, you know, really go wild, um, right. which is probably doesn't seem like the problem of our day. <laughs> right. Uh, but what is it, uh, and I, you give plenty in the book, but in terms of like the spirit that knowing the spirit you are of, I assume is yeah. maybe part of that. Right. Chesterton once described the person who fights, not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. Okay. All right. So. Uh, are you in the battle because you love people? Are you in the battle because you love certain things, certain institutions, certain doctrines, certain truths? Are you in the battle because you love or you hate and you want to kill something and wolves will do? 
Right, right. <laughs> okay, perfect. So there's a couple things, and there's a few authors, some that you have pointed to, and some that uh, that I've found along the way that have helped put a finger on things. Um, like I have in mind things like, like I think I've heard you've talked about Gerard in a way that everyone sees the truck of conflict moving, mm -hmm. but they don't quite know how the engine works. Right, and there there are authors that come along that sort of help you understand what is moving the truck. I recently read a book and I, well, I had him on, uh, his name is Mark Regnus. He's a professor out of University of Texas. He wrote a book called Cheap Sex. Okay. Yeah, I read that. Okay. So his sexual economy, I don't know if you remember this, where he, one thing that was very, this is changing the subject, but not really where he talked about how essentially the importance of parents just getting their kids married uh -huh. plays such a big role in terms of society where sex has become so cheap in terms of um, like the way he, he played it out in terms of an economy as in like, you know, if you have a house on the street and let's say you were about to sell it for 250 grand, but then the house next door to you sold theirs for 160. Right. Your house is no longer worth 250 right. grand. Similarly, if you're in a school and Susie hears about sexual stuff happening in the school on the school bus, all of a sudden the access to or even just the sexual economy has just gotten a lot cheaper. Yeah, the, you've crashed the market. You've crashed the market. So in terms of thinking about what I've enjoyed about living here is that over time and over the years with the intangibles and trusting God for them, God has been kind that there seems to be an economy of Christian faithfulness okay. that has been built up over years. Mm -hmm. And some of this is... Um, this gets into the intangibles when I think of like, how do I give things to my family or when, when they hear me talk about things and it's so foreign to them, they don't have maybe an imaginative capacity to imagine that, mm -hmm. but it's because there's something like 40 years, 40 plus years of right. Christian faithfulness. So essentially what I started thinking about given Regnerus's setup is it seems very difficult, even in his sexual economy to raise it. Yeah. To re establish the old prices. Yes. And, and that seems to be, it, it helped give me sort of hooks on, a, on in a way that I could understand also the, the spiritual nature of this. Um, does that, so you, you've nodded along, is that something that makes sense to you? And is that yeah. how you think about things like this in terms of families and cities? Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. So sexual availability is not the only thing we've crashed the market on. Okay. So what have we devalued? in addition to sexual intercourse. Well, we've devalued, just to take another example at random, dinner every night with your family. Right. Okay. When I was, when I was a kid growing up, every night, we were all around the table, dinner was served, and the family ate together. We prayed together, had devotions together, and we ate together. Right. Now, have we devalued that? Where half, Amer half of all American Christians have their dinner leaning over the sink, you know, because they like they like hot pockets or, or, or what, what and i'm not objecting to fast food and i'm not objecting in in its place to certain things but i'm talking about the the rituals or the habits that build civilizations right and dinner with family closeness to family would be one of them uh not having dad be distant and detached would be another one right uh not having any men around you who would be willing to risk anything in order to protect your virtue, your safety, your honor, 
you know, anything like right. that. Uh, so we've crashed the market on all those things. Right, right. right? And it helps in terms of uh, when I look back on the your writing that I've read in terms of even like with the school, you could put a perfectly healthy Christian family or with a Christian kid into the Christian school. But what you've done is put them in a position, you could have a really bright kid and someone who, you know, is not given to easily to temptation or anything else. But what you've done is put them in a location where it's way easier for them to mess up. Or, you know, you, you've essentially by putting them in that low economy have made it that much easier for them to fall. It, it's right. essentially just an unkind thing to do. So bringing that a little bit further down, Edwin Friedman's failure of nerve that mm -hmm. you've recommended. Could you tell me about his thesis of a differentiated leader? I'm reminded first of a quote by P.G. Woodhouse, who said that when you look at the organization, uh, somebody is always up to something. And Andy says the rest of them are up to something else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, what Friedman argues is that a, a leader has to be uh, willing to be uncomfortable. He has to be willing to make it awkward. <laughs> because yeah because if you're not willing to make it awkward then you never have that conversation you never have a confrontation you never have conflict and you stay in the mainstream until the mainstream goes over victoria falls or niagara falls yeah or yeah. eats you yeah or the mainstream yeah the basically you can avoid conflict all the way to the point of disaster or ride your avoidance of conflict all the way to the point of disaster. And Friedman argues that basically when you have any kind of mojo going, when and and there are leaders who are not willing to have the awkward conversation, they're not willing to do it, but but they've got something going and and something starts up and it's really uh gonna go places, there's going to be somebody who tries to sabotage it. There's gonna be a saboteur. Like clockwork. Right, like clockwork. You can count on it. Right? You can count on it. And and Friedman says, because you can count on it, you need to be on your toes and ready for the moment when that moment comes, when the person tries to blow the whole thing up. <laughs> and, um, and when they try to blow the whole thing up, you've got to be willing to get awkward, be angular, not be, not be prepared to go along and uh, sell the whole thing out. My son, Nate, I, th I think we need to name this rule. We, it doesn't have a name yet, but he postulated that in any meeting, like a board meeting or a committee meeting or anything like that, in any meeting that lasts over 20 minutes, someone will propose something which, if implemented, will ruin everything. <laughs> so, meetings under 20 minutes. <laughs> yes. But then the devil's going to figure out how to get, that uh, to, 18. get it to 18 because someone is always going to, there's that role of the saboteur. That is going to happen. And so, the leader, instead of, and you can see that how the leadership style of modern contemporary reformed evangelicalism has capitulated to this because we, we define leadership as building consensus. <laughs> okay. Yes. Now, don't mistake me. It's, there is a good thing that you could reasonably describe as building consensus or getting buy-in or whatever. Um, but the way it's used in modern corporate decision-making or church uh, leadership stuff, basically it paralyzes the leader because you give veto power to the saboteur. You give veto power to right. the person who's not convinced, right. right? Instead of the leader saying, huh, look at this situation, and the leader's down the road, 
right? Okay, let's go, boys. And he differentiates himself. He puts distance between himself and where everybody was comfortably sitting. Yes. Okay. Okay. And uh, so he goes. And now that makes other people uncomfortable because they've got to rebel or follow. They've got to make a decision. They've got to do something. And so uh, Friedman, I think, is invaluable to understanding a lot of the a lot of the ways leadership teams and look at that that, that <laughs> phrase. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, leadership teams have capitulated to the spirit of the age. So when I think about people that raise or that have the capacity to raise the economy of a certain place, whether it's a church or your family. Uh, which Friedman's great for families in general, not mm-hmm. to mention the the other areas, but it seems like it takes a leader with spine, which is essentially what he says, you know, the minute a spine comes around, sabotage right. all the way. One thing that I found in myself, even as I've read Friedman, is that I can see, I can watch it in real time. I can have all the X's and O's. I see the leader. Right. I see the saboteur coming. I can lay it out on the blackboard, but at the end of the day, what Friedman, the way out of Friedman's to differentiate yourself, it takes things like courage. Correct. And, and that's and C.S. Lewis, th- that's exactly the point. C.S. Lewis says somewhere that courage is not so much a separate virtue as it is the testing point of all the virtues. Right. So, so it's um, if you are only honest until it costs you something, you're not honest. It's the testing point of every virtue. Because every virtue is going to have to be defended. And what happens is as soon as you have conflict, whether it's verbal conflict or a polemical exchange or a showdown on the elder board, as soon as you have conflict, the thing that follows conflict, like night follows day, is cost. Yes. Conflict has a cost. And people don't want to pay that price. They They don't want that cost. And so they avoid the conflict because they don't have enough courage. Right. To pay the price, to do what is necessary. Now, implicit in what you're saying, and head me off if I'm, if I'm heading off in, no, you're fine. Uh, into the wrong direction. But one of the, this is, this whole thing is something that I don't, I've talked about some, been interviewed about some and written, I've written about some, but there's a hazard in it. Okay. I, I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that in this Moscow project that we have and what's going on here in Moscow is really remarkable. And it's the grace of God, grace of God, top to bottom, front to back, side to side. It's grace of God. And I don't want to go the wrong way in interviews about it, although I think it's important to talk about, and that's the tension point, is you don't want to be giving interviews uh, or writing books with titles like Humility and How I Attained It. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Let me explain to you, uh, Mr. McAtee, how we got to be so wonderful. Yes. and if we're talking about how we got so wonderful, then it's clear and glaringly obvious that we're not wonderful at all yet. So that's the first thing. At the same time, if you're wanting to build the kingdom, if you're wanting to grow the kingdom of God, if you're wanting to establish the church and you want the, the church to be healthy, you should, should have some idea of what direction that is and whether, you're, whether it's going in that direction or not. So you're, you, you can say that God has been very kind to us, which he has, without saying that we've in any way arrived. Right. Right. And I can tell you that the progress that we have made has been made by means of crawling over broken glass. That's really good. And that maybe gives or at least fills out what I'm, where I was headed in terms of 
One thing additionally could be uh, that I've seen is a, maybe the way to get here is, uh, <laughs> I've heard you say, I think in, in sermons about why pastors must be men. Right. Is because Paul clearly says that women do not have the authority to be there. Right. And not all men. Essentially, there should be a particular man in the pulpit. Right. And he has one with authority. Right. With authority is, I think in my whole life, I can count on one hand, maybe two, men with authority. Okay. And not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean all of them were pastors, but even just a presence. Okay. So, this sort of links back with Friedman in a sense that uh, he really ushers you away from techniques with leadership. Right. And that the differentiation is is more of a is more about presence. Right. The man who walks in the room, he doesn't do anything. He's not, but you know. Right. You know that 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 person has authority. He has a certain presence about him. And one thing I've found <laughs> is uh, what's tough about Paul's verse, not tough, tough for us about Paul's verse is there might be a large side of evangelicalism that's never seen a man with authority. Correct. <laughs> so a failure of imagination, even in terms of using whether you're doing an interview about what Moscow is up to, but even just saying like, I'm doing my best to give examples to certain sides of evangelicalism. What is a man with authority? Yeah, I'm trying to describe blue to a blind man. Right. Or, you know, and and so the difficulty is so many feminine characteristics have been urged upon the pious young boy who's been told since sixth grade that he ought to consider seminary by all the nice church ladies and while they pinch his cheeks. Um, you're such a godly and pious young boy. That boy oftentimes has had drilled into him the importance of certain feminine characteristics, right? And so he's very gentle and he's soft and he's, and of course, again, the Bible says, you know, preachers, uh, gentleness is one of the fruit of the spirit and so on. Of course. But there's a certain cultural effeminacy that I'm talking about here. And when you train the men to be like that, over time, uh, somebody's going to say, you know, if we really want a woman in the pulpit, I think we ought to get the real thing. <laughs> so, well, way better we, at it. <laughs> yeah. The women are going to do better at this. Yeah. What we're asking the men to do, the women would be, really would be better at that. Right. Okay. Now, uh, I don't think that women would be better at all uh, uh, if you want someone John Knox-like to walk straight out of the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah. Who's John Knox? Don't you know yeah. your Old Testament? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> John Knox walk out of the Old Testament into the pulpit and says, hear the word of the Lord, ye sinners. Okay? There's not a woman on the planet that can do that. Okay? No matter how godly, you know, she just doesn't have that presence. Okay, now you can have that presence and not have the word of God, and you can have the word of God and not have that presence. But what we should be praying for would be preachers who have both. Jesus taught with authority and not like the scribes. So let's say you had to give a message on authority, which maybe you just did. But how, what is, um, maybe not even a message, but let's say you're with a group of men and not necessarily a preaching aspect. How do you give that to them? All right, there's there's are two things. It's harder at a distance. So right. when you're talking about blogs and books, right, it it can be done, but it's much more difficult. And the reason for it is the authority comes, I believe, fundamentally from obedience. So if someone hmm. has X Y Z truths from God, and just three of them, 
but he's trying to put them into practice. I think he's going to have more authority than someone who has 10 truths from God, who's not putting any of them into, yep. into practice or not, not really caring about whether he lives them or not. Okay. Now, if I write truths on the page and I'm trying to put those truths into practice, it will take longer for any sense of authority to be communicated to someone 3,000 miles away who buys the book. Right. All right. But what Paul was up to when he tells the Corinthians to imitate me as I imitate Christ, how are these intangibles communicated? Well, they're communicated by imitation. Uh, in Ephesians, it says, um, therefore, as dearly loved children, be imitators of God. We learn these intangibles by copying. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, and, and I would hasten to say, we learn them by copying the right thing. So, if you see an anointed preacher, some very powerful preacher, you don't get a picture of him and take it, that picture to your barber and say, I want a haircut just like that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I already bought a Bible just like his, yeah. and I got a right. necktie just like his, and I want a haircut just like his. What you're doing is you're copying, right? But you're copying all the wrong things. Right. All right. Not the intangibles. Not the intangibles. And what you want to do is people who've moved here, for example, and this is a comment kind of comment I've heard more than once, where someone moves here and says, I don't know about this reform theology, and I, I, don't know about, I don't know about this and that and the other thing, but I look around at these families at church, and I want my kids to be like that. Now, there's no secret sauce. There's no magic right. thing, because what you're copying would be a host of things would be very, very difficult to put into a book. Now, you can put some of the bigger ones into a book, but someone's going to have to fill in the cracks. Someone's going to have to fill it in around the edges. And that has to do with imitation, imitation. And we live in an era when the atomistic individualism of our time forswears. If you copy someone, if you imitate anyone, you've lost your soul. You're, you're being inauthentic because you're copying someone. Right. Okay. And many Christians have bought into that where they think originality is reaching deep down into yourself and hauling something out for us all to see. Uh, but that's not where originality co comes from. Uh, originality comes from me being the kind of person and personality that I am, copying someone else and having those intangibles that I'm copying mixed with the ingredients that God gave me right. that I don't know anything about. And a new thing comes into existence as a result of that. Right. And it seems like even as you were mentioning the atomistic sort of way of that society is going, it doesn't mean either that they actually achieve atomization. It just seems like a, a perpetual immaturity. Yeah, because God built us to be copiers. We imitate, we, we imitate like we breathe. But the, what the individualism does is it hides from us the fact that we are doing so, right? So, we're copy, 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 copy. It's just self-deception then. It's just self-deception because what happens is… Um, Back in the 1950s, if some girl wanted to go to a dance in a poodle skirt or something, and she's having an argument with her mom, back in the 50s, the argument would go, Mom, you've got to let me be like the other kids. You, you, don't, want let, you don't want me to stand out. You know, yeah. well, you've, got, you've, got to let, <laughs> you've got to let me copy, yeah. right? Well, we've gone through such a um, metamorphosis over the last generation or two that we still have arguments about what the daughter is going to wear to the dance. But today, the argument is, Mom, you've got to let me be myself. Yeah. Right? Now, in this case, being yourself 
means looking like all the other girls still looks like so, every, yeah still yep. you you're conf you conform to all the other girls as much as the girl in the 50s did it's just that you think you're being original so you see some kid at the mall with you know droopy pants and jangly piercings and purple mohawk and stuff you should think about a thought experiment don't do this actually but <laughs> walk up to them and say oh that how what a striking thing however did you think of it <laughs> <laughs> right, right. What do you mean, however, did you think of it? Every city street in America has got people walking around this way. We are copiers. We are imitators. And right. so, the Bible urges us to copy that which is true, noble, lovely, right. And that doesn't kill originality. What that does is it's the catalyst for originality. Right. So, in the end, it seems like even the modern drive for originality is not, it's self-deception. Right. It isn't a drive for originality. And like an, every other idol, the thing you worship is the thing you lose. Perfect. One way to sort of change the subject here without doing so would be, I recently had on Michael Ward to yeah. discuss Planet Narnia, yeah, um, which I was going back through and, and I'm always super edified by and enjoy so much in my appreciation for Lewis, even as I, uh, everybody seems to know the big classics of Lewis. Right. Um, but what I always appreciate about Ward is is sending me, chasing down the footnotes to go through things like Allegory of Love or the yeah. other Cambridge series. We've you've already mentioned Lewis. Lewis, you've said is um, someone who has influenced you more than everyone else combined. Yeah, is that still the case? Out of all the authors that I've read, yeah, still uh, the case. Okay, yeah, I'd have to say my dad influenced me more than everybody. But out of people I've read, yeah, um, Lewis over against everybody else, yeah. One thing that I thought he does a great job of in terms of, again, authors that are sort of pointing to things that uh, we struggle to kind of put our finger on is uh, Donegality. Right. Can you tell us what he means by Donegality? Lewis came up with the phrase, he was talking about the atmospherics of County Donegal in Ireland. Okay. Uh, so, that place has a particular feel. So, the Narnian air is the Narnian Donegality. Okay. Okay. And certain authors, successfully create those atmospherics for you to go live in in the book and you, so you began by t and i would say donegality or atmospherics or the uh, intangibles yep that we were talking about at the beginning yep. are all the same thing yes <laughs> okay <laughs> you gave it away pastor Wilson. <laughs> did i oh, there's, there's your punch, there's your punchline um they all reduce to the same thing so the reason Let's see, I was born in 53, and my dad started reading Narnia to us when I was five, which means that I may have been, they were like new books. Right. Uh, you know, they, I'm not sure if they may have all been released by that time, but they were, they, they weren't the phenomenon. What they, year again? Uh, that would have been 1958. Lewis still alive then. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Lewis died when I was 10. Wow. And, uh, and so if I'd only been a precocious child, <laughs> precocious child. I would have written him a letter. That's right. And I would have. Could have gotten something uh, back too. I, I could have. Yeah. But what Lewis successfully does, I, I grew up in Narnia. My dad would read to us. I was the oldest. My dad would read a chapter before bedtime and I would sneak off and finish it <laughs> that, that night. I grew up in Narnia, basically. I've, okay. I, and I've got steeped in the Narnian atmospherics. Okay. Now, what happened many, many years later when I read Michael Ward's thesis? What he did is he made those 
intangibles, those atmospherics make sense. He popped the hood and, and we looked at what Lewis was uh, doing in order to achieve this effect. As a as a quick aside, by the way, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. He he lays out several. He lays out the critics to to get started to kind of give mm-hmm. a, a you know the context for why he's writing. Right. Did you ever did did things like Santa showing up or Father Christmas showing up or or uh, was it Miss, Mrs. Beaver's uh, sewing machine? Sewing machine. Did those ever bug you? No, they never bugged me. I noticed them. Okay. Right. I noticed them, but they didn't bother me. And it's like, it's the sort of thing you make a joke about. And uh, <laughs> yeah. well, here's, here's an inconsistency, which Lewis being a great genius can get away with. Okay. Well, but then when you learn, if you get what Ward is talking about, you want to be very careful not to rush to the charge of inconsistency too quickly. It's not that I think that Narnia is scripture. There could be, sure. incon- there could be inconsistencies. And I think I know of one. It's a, one of Pauline Bain's illustrations where <laughs> Aslan is walking with the White Witch, conversing about Edmund, and he's walking on his hind legs with paws behind Uh-oh. his back. <laughs> and that's not a true, yeah. that's not a true beast. Right. 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 A, so that I would right. say that, but that's Pauline Bain's, and I don't know if Lewis was tired when he reviewed the illustrations or whatever. Right. But the thing that is striking about Lewis's ability, and I think it shows up in the Ransom trilogy also is that he can successfully create a place in which a creature, like a reader, can go and be affected by, right? So, if, if you've got a painted landscape at a play you go to, that painted landscape may not ha- have any impact on you at all, or it might, depending on how right. well it's done. Lewis successfully transports people by the hundreds of thousands <laughs> yes. in, into this place where they are affected by the intangibles. Now, this, this thing that we're talking about, the phenomenon that we're talking about even happens with scripture. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Okay. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them they, you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness to me. So, even scripture has a verbal propositional meaning right there on the surface and a host of intangibles. So, I'm going to ask you in a second about when you say it affects you, what that means, which again, this is when it gets tough, you know, to give people. But what a very cheap way of saying this is, you know, if you, if you could be transported into West Texas for one week, you know, all of a sudden you may really kind of like how those cowboys boots look. Right. You know, you, you might develop a slight drawl. Right. All of a sudden this place is having an effect upon you. And those are very maybe shallow ways, but what wh- what do you mean when you say Narnia or uh, authors that do this, scripture is clear, but what do you mean by um, affect you? Just to make a point, not only if you go to West Texas, you might start adopting it. Uh, my daughter, when Ben was in getting his DPhil in Oxford, when they, they lived in Oxford for three or four years, and Becca said, Americans over there in Oxford do one of two things. They either go native and put on an English accent, or they become Texans. <laughs> they, they either go, okay, I'm going to become an Englishman, or I'm going to yeah. lean against it. I'm gonna, so, yeah. there's more than one way to become a Texan, is okay, what, yep. what I'm saying. Um, wh- what I'm saying is that you find yourself, if you live in a place long enough, you find yourself picking up some things consciously and other things unconsciously. So, tie this all in with um, Lewis's medieval cosmology, which Michael Ward is very good, good on. 
and he makes all the the connections. I don't remember when this first dawned on me, but I knew that in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, Eustace is told, even in your world, that's not what a star is. That's only what a star is made of. Right. By okay. a star. By a star. Let's say I'm 10 years later, I'm in a science class, and I've got a scientist up front of the class telling me how much helium and how much hydrogen and how much this is making up this star. Unbidden, a phrase is going to come into my mind. <laughs> You're not telling me what a star is. You're just telling me what a star is made of. It's just nothing buttering it. It's, it's nothing buttery. Yeah. That star is nothing but. Well, then why can't we do that to human beings? You're nothing but the chemicals that make you up, right? Now, what, what Lewis is up to, his project is a re-enchantment of the world. Okay. Okay. And I learn, I don't just learn what Narnia is like. I learn what this world's like. The point is not to read the books a hundred times so that if I ever get swept into Narnia, I'll know what to do. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's so that I can read those books over and over and over again so that I can look around me in 21st century America and know what to do. So I had in mind too, when uh, Lewis with the Ransom Trilogy that you mentioned, I know that that hideous strength is one of your favorites, mm -hmm. the favorite. Yeah. Uh, it's certainly my favorite of all Lewis's books, and it's probably my favorite book. Okay. So, when it's interesting when Ransom, I noticed this on my last read through, when Ransom is trying to give, well, and actually, Ward points to this w in the jovial chapter. So, when he's attempting to sort of export joviality, kingliness, mm -hmm. I believe Ransom asks Jane if she's never read McDonald's Curdy series. Uh -huh. Or something to that effect, you know, the princess and Curdie. Yeah, yeah. And he references the uh, the princess's father, the king. Right. And that's how, you know, haven't you read? Yeah. Let's say you are doing your, your best to export a, jovial, a joviality, a kingliness, that sort of presence. What does Douglas Wilson reach for? What I'm trying to describe that kind of kingliness? Yes. Let's say, you know, if you have a Jane in the room and okay. you're attempting to do that. Yeah. I think um, basically Lewis has... His version of Princess Irene has a um, wonderful father, right? Yep. And I think McDonald does it up a little brown because, <laughs> because he's got, got to make him a kind and loving father who's removed from Irene. Yep. So, I think he's making sure that we understand yeah. him as a, as a good guy. Well, uh, Lewis's version of that is King Loon. Right. Okay. Right. Um, so I know what kingliness is. It's to be the first in every fight and to be the last in every desperate retreat. It's to laugh the hardiest over every scanty meal. It's, you know, it's, yep. it's basically authority. And this goes back to our earlier question of authority. Authority flows to those who take responsibility and authority flees those who try to evade responsibility. And everything King Loon says in a, not a, why don't you feel sorry for me? It's not Uncle Andrew, ours is a high and lonely destiny, <laughs> or, yes. or Jadis. It's not that, right. um, our, it's, it's not that, but Loon is describing a high and lonely destiny. Right. He, he's describing what it is to lead. Uh, leading is dying. Leading is differentiating. Leading is being out in front and making people uncomfortable and thereby inspiring them. So, you, you mentioned a little while ago when... We ought to be careful in terms of how we talk about Moscow. And, and it's not necessarily a commercial for Moscow all the time. And that's, that's why we are exporting so much. Right. Do it there. 
is something like Lewis's, I mean, would you just, maybe you just go to Lewis, but in terms of when I mentioned the failure of imagination, which mm-hmm. I think is a, a, probably a big part of, um, leaders in term, and I don't mean in terms of, uh, everybody should just go start reading fiction for, for its, right. for imagination's sake. But have you seen the failure of, an, of imagination in things like the authority question? Yeah. Like, what would I do here? You know, if only Doug, I imagine there, there, somebody might think if only Doug could apply, could we just all get up, move and have Doug speak about this family situation? Right. What, um, let's say there's a few people whose ears have been perked at that. You know, that's been me before. How do you equip folks to attack those things on their own? Which is essentially your ministry, but it's um just go read lewis <laughs> <laughs> well it, it's it's not is, that easy but essentially how do you export those kind of what is it john says in first john what is it that overcomes the world is it not our faith now i think faith exercising faith when it comes to building community planting churches growing a family yep exercising faith is an exercise of the godly imagination okay so it's it's a um it's an imaginative exercise, which therefore has to be sharply distinguished from daydreaming. Uh, uh, yes. So, daydreaming is not a faith-driven exercise, but imagining, and I'm, I don't usually quote Napoleon approvingly, but Napoleon once said, imagination rules the world. And I believe that that's very true because I, be- I believe that faith rules the world. And in, among the believers, faith is the driving engine of imagination, okay? And but imagination needs grist. It's like a yes. it's like a something that grinds flour, and you need wheat. You need to be putting wheat in into it. And for that, you want to be reading wholesome books. You want to be reading Lewis and Chesterton and Macdonald and people who will grind grind that wheat. Faith and imagination will grind that wheat into a flour that you can use for making your own bread. So uh, there are things that in Lewis that had a have had a profound impact on me. There's a place in that hideous strength where uh, Fairy Hardcastle has three people to follow and only two men to follow them, right? Yeah. And so she has to decide which yep. one she's going to leave alone. Yep. And she she leaves Dimble alone, who would have led her to the company at St. Anne's. She because there's uh, apart from him being a Christian, there's really not that much we have against him. <laughs> he seems like a nullity. Yep. And then the the other two are movers and shakers, you know, the kind of people that somebody says, you know, we could use that kind of talent on our side. They're natural leaders. And, and I, for the longest time, I've wanted to please God, let us not become that. The movers and shakers. The movers and shakers, the, the, the people who are obviously the ones who are the established, you know, out front ones. I want... To ha- I do want to make a dent in the world. I want to have an impact on the world. I want to beat the bad guys. And I want to do it in the company at St. Anne's yep. with some women and some vegetables and a grouchy atheist and a, and a bear. And a bear. Uh, and so, and maybe one word that I think that you've mentioned in the interview and that I see you getting in trouble for all the time is obedience. It seems to me that authority, as let's say men, ga- five guys gather in a room, five guys go to the bar. Authority is very, it's not subjective. Right. The men, no. everybody knows. Right. So authority is, uh, <laughs> it's tough in terms of, it's not the thing that you just bought. Right. It's 
you, as you mentioned earlier, is gained through obedience, through those things that Correct. you said, even if it's the three things. So has your <laughs> ministry with your daughter, Rachel, got into tr trouble with this as well on, right. a, on an emphasis of obedience? Right. How do you see that fitting in terms of what we've been talking about? Yeah, the thing, the thing to do, uh, first, you can't stop some people from lying, but so let's not try. <laughs> um, and we, we affirm at the beginning, sola fide, that basically we're, our justification has nothing whatever to do with our obedience. Right. That's God, God putting us right. He imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. It's the obedience. But even there, it's obedience that saves us. It, it's Christ's obedience. It's the obedience of our representative. It's the obedience of our federal head. And that's imputed to me. So that's justification. Now, the Monday morning following my conversion, I still have to do something. And the radical proposition that Rachel offered was that if you're a Christian, you should do what God said to. <laughs> and the fact... And, <laughs> We've really buried the lead with this episode. <laughs> and the fact that that is controversial in reformed evangelical circles is one of the most gobsmackingly crazy things I've ever heard of. Of course, Christians should do what God says, right? Of course. And of course, God's going to bless it when they, we do what he says. Right. He's going to, but it's all going to be according to his covenant. It's going to be covenantal blessings. It's not going to be anything that we can take pride in. What do you have that you did not receive as a gift? And if you received it as a gift, why do you boast as though you did not? But the one who hears the word and doesn't do it, James says, deceives himself. So the people who are living, the, you know, the internet trolls living under bridges are in such a state of delusion because they're not obedient, right? And going back to McDonald again, obedience is the great opener of eyes. So obedience enables you to see and understand what's going on around you. It doesn't earn you anything, right? but it results in things. Right. And uh, it, it seems in terms of with this year, 2020, being as it was, and the breakdown of not only whether it was jobs or health with families, you know, life is uh, God plays rough, as mm -hmm. Nate mentions, and the people that are effective in the world, which I think we've all learned this year how nice it is to have people, wise people, mm -hmm. in chaos. Like, right. it is nice to have. And those people are tough to find when... They're not being obedient or haven't, you know, built a long faithfulness in obedience. Mm -hmm. So essentially, my thought was with this episode, I think there are things that I've learned just being here, tasting the air that in the long run, when, when folks try to apply, if they find this place helpful or they find the podcast and the books helpful, obedience is, is kind of it at the end of the day. Right. Long form obedience over time. Right. So uh, I'll just end with, end with this. Um, my dad was converted. While he was at the Naval Academy, and he didn't really know any Christians, he knew a handful of Christians, but not really. He he wasn't in a Christian evangelical world. And then he graduated in fifty and went out to the fleet, went straight into the Korean War. He found out he wandered into a bookstore in Hong Kong one time and found out there that there was such a thing as Christian books. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> right. In Hong Kong. In Hong, of all in places. Hong, yeah. Of all places. So he bought some missionary biographies and he decided that I don't have any real examples. I don't have older, more mature Christians to look up to. 
I didn't grow up in the atmospherics of faithful Christianity. I'm going to buy missionary biographies and imitate everything I can. Okay. I'm going to imitate those who did it right. Yep. And I think our family was spared a lot of nonsense because he did that, because he took that approach. And my dad is one of a kind. And the fact that he was imitating other people didn't erase or modify or affect his originality at all. It right. accentuated. And it, it helped if you're self-consciously imitating, it helps keep the humility levels where they ought to be um, because you're not saying, oh, um, look at this genius bubbling up from within me. <laughs> right. Right. Thank you, Pastor Wilson. Well, thank you. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. Merry, Merry Christmas. You too. 